So hi, and welcome to the Story of Software podcast. Today, we're going to talk about the interoperability of blockchains. And we're joined by Dominic Hartz, who's the co-founder and CTO at Interlay. Dominic, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. I'm very much looking forward to speaking with you about interoperability and blockchains today. Fantastic. So Dominic has a unique blend of academic and professional experience in the crypto and blockchain space. So he's finalizing his PhD in computer science from Imperial College London. You have a number of publications to your name. You're, as I mentioned, the co-founder and CTO of Interlay. Maybe to kick off with, you could tell us a little bit about where your interest in blockchain came from. Uh, Yeah, really good question. Thank you. So I started back in 2016 when the DAO, this thing called the Decentralized Autonomous Organization, was conceived basically on Ethereum. And the idea was that you could have this autonomous organization run via code. Basically, it was a venture capital or a hedge fund where projects could apply to. And then you, as an investor, you deposit some Ethereum into this contract and it would be paid out to projects for funding. And it had some cool features, like it could split itself up if investors didn't find majority. And I found this to be extremely cool to encode all of this in a piece of code that would self-enforce and you wouldn't have to trust anyone. And then a couple of weeks later, after I read about that and dabbled around a little bit, uh, it got hacked and Ethereum split as a result of that into Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. And I was like, okay, I'm super hooked now. This is what I want to work on. And uh, then decided to do my PhD on the, on the topic and go full on to blockchains, worked on like formal methods and mechanism design mostly during my PhD and ended up writing my, my thesis on what is now basically called decentralized finance. And as part of my PhD, I, I met Alexei, who I co-founded Interlay with. His PhD is actually on blockchain interoperability, and he came up with a protocol to do a very specific part of blockchain interoperability for Bitcoin. And I wrote the first implementation of this protocol. Protocol is called Xclaim. And ever since I'm kind of working on interoperability as well, and the company that we founded, Interlay, is essentially implementing this particular protocol, Xclaim. Fantastic. Perhaps for the benefit of our listeners, I'm actually going to go back to first principles because my father asked me a couple of weeks ago, to explain what blockchain is and what Bitcoin is. And I find it really difficult to explain for him. So maybe we can take a step back, look at definitions around blockchain, around crypto, and then around interoperability, if you're happy to help us with those. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So I think in a very fundamental and and simple way, a blockchain is a shared ledger. So what we are having is basically uh, we're creating like this common history of transactions where all of us can be certain that transactions are correct. They're in the same order. So that we can make sure that, I don't know, for example, I didn't spend more Bitcoin to you than I should have. That's like my balance. And the idea of blockchains is essentially like this ordering of transactions and solving this double spending problem, but making sure that each and everyone in the network can just validate and verify that this is actually done correctly. So fundamentally, what Bitcoin allows you to do is I can send you a transaction, you can send me a transaction, no other third party can intervene with that, no bank can basically block the transaction, and every participant in the network can be part of the validation and verification of this transaction. And that makes it like a a protocol that can withstand any kind of censorship. And then later on, like Ethereum 
came around and kind of extensions to Bitcoin and new kind of evolvements blockchain that allowed you to do much more than just sending transactions, right? So now on Ethereum, for example, you can have lending protocols, you can have exchanges entirely implemented as smart contracts. NFTs is a new big thing, I guess, nowadays where you can just transfer art on the blockchain. I would be interested to understand as well, before we get on to interoperability, what is the evolving mindset or perspective of financial regulators been around blockchain and cryptocurrencies? So what are you <laughs> observing maybe? That's a very difficult question maybe to answer, but I'm curious as to what your perspective on that is. Yeah, um, I'll preface that with uh, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so uh, to take this with a grain of salt. This is the perspective from, from an engineer who works in the space. So regulatory... It's evolving and changing over time quite a bit. I think there's sort of the awakening to, okay, this crypto thing is not going away. It's now present in mass media quite a bit, especially when prices go up. It tends to be quite popular. I think there's two things to the regulatory side. So one thing is for sure there is some sort of way to regulate parts of it. When 2017, 18, the ICO hype came about, so... Projects were selling their own tokens, creating new currencies. There were a lot of scam projects in that time. I think now with the rising prices again, and uh, a lot of the regulators try to prevent that to protect basically end users. I think ultimately that's a good thing. Like you don't want to have a lot of scammy people and first experience with blockchain shouldn't be, you know, you buying some tokens some random token and then you lose all of your money. But the other side of it is I think there's a lot of serious consideration right now to use the technology and to actually embrace public blockchains and ledgers like Ethereum or Bitcoin, you know, as a new asset class and also use the technology actually for its benefits. Probably you heard about El Salvador having now this Bitcoin law that basically makes it mandatory to accept Bitcoin payments quite interesting, I think. And I think there's some countries, especially central banks, looking into digitalizing their central currencies. So I don't know, maybe we'll have a digital US dollar actually issued by the Fed, or we might have a British pound that lives on the chain. I think China is doing some experiments around it. So I think it's like slowly coming into that perspective. But Obviously, the regulatory is still early. Most states are still trying to figure out exactly how it's going to be used before they make concrete rules. We might move on to interoperability. So let's look maybe first at the definition. Yeah, I'm trying to explain interoperability usually by comparing blockchains to banks, although we are trying to replace banks a lot with this new technology and with new trust model. But if you think about it like that, maybe you have your money in multiple different accounts because you're using different banks, say for your uh, savings account, maybe you have another bank where you are trading assets, and maybe you have like a third bank, something maybe like Revolut, right? Which is like really easy to use for credit cards and such, such things. And you could kind of imagine that you have different blockchains that serve different purposes. So you have something like Bitcoin, which allows you to do transfers and to do very minimalistic smart contracts. And then you have blockchains like Ethereum that have full set of distributed virtual machine that allows you to do all these decentralized exchanges, allows you to do lending protocols, like a full suit and range of things. And then you have maybe 
maybe something like Solana, which is specialized on high performance transactions. And you have kind of these different models. Now, the idea for interoperability is basically allowing you to use your assets on these different chains. So it's pretty much like you're using your euros from your savings account to your trading account and allows you to do certain actions than in your trading account. Basically taking your Bitcoin and then getting it into some form of asset on Ethereum to do trading there. I think that's a very fundamental way to describe this interoperability. And then there's all sorts of different ways to achieve that. But ultimately, that's what it is. Allowing different chains to speak to each other and allowing you as a user to actually use your assets on any kind of chain. Beyond that, I suppose, uh, fluidity between, let's say, asset classes, what are the other advantages that stem from interoperability? Right. So there's a reason why different chains exist in the first place. You have different trade-offs that you can achieve building blockchains. Essentially, blockchain solves this problem of trust, right? So you don't need to trust anyone anymore. And there's different ways to achieve this. And the solution space is quite broad. And let's say Bitcoin, who was kind of the first big popular one, is now kind of the store of value. So like keeping your Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain, nobody can take it away. Bitcoin is very cautious with experiments, so it's relatively safe. Whereas Ethereum, for example, you can do a lot of different things, especially on the smart contract level where people try out new protocols. You know, it might just break. And... Solana, for example, is like high performance blockchain, Polkadot is something new, and you have all of these different things, but you might want to try them out. And the main advantage is you want to actually move your assets to try these different blockchains and for exactly the use case they were made for. So let's say uh, if you want to trade, maybe the transaction fees on Ethereum prohibitively might be expensive. So you might rather want to go to Solana or Polkadot once it's ready. And you will have these different chains that are particularly good for specific use cases. And interoperability will allow you to hopefully as seamlessly as possible to move between these different chains so that you as the end user, you mostly just care about, you know, what's my actual use case, but you don't really care on which chain your assets are currently living in. Fantastic. And can I ask, um, are there any security considerations and concerns that we need to have in mind when considering interoperability? Uh, yes, quite a few, <laughs> but that might also have to do with me publishing in like these computer security conferences. Right. So most of the current interoperability solutions are custodial or centralized. So that means you kind of have to trust a certain party that they actually keeping your funds safe. Very much like when trading was still pretty much fully centralized. You just had to trust the party that they don't take away your funds. So for example, the currently most popular interoperability service from Bitcoin to Ethereum is called RepBTC or WBTC. It has about 1% of all Bitcoin locked right now on Ethereum, but it's all kept with a custodial party. So that party decides to take away all of your Bitcoin, well, then they're gone. And I think that's currently the biggest kind of security concern. We started using blockchain, so we don't need to trust any third party right now. And in interoperability right now, because technology is still early and limited, uh, we still have to trust third parties again to move these assets around. And this is what we at Intelay also are working on to kind of remove this trust or to at least give you some sort of insurance that if the party steals, there is a monetary compensation there's some nuances here because since different blockchains have different capabilities, you can build other 
more non-custodial solutions between blockchains that have better capabilities, say between Ethereum and Polkadot, for example, you can just build technically different solutions than you can build between, say, Bitcoin and Ethereum, just because Bitcoin is limited on what you can do on top of it. Beyond Interlay, what are the other projects around interoperability uh, going on in the software world right now that we could talk about? Uh, there's quite a few. So let me dive into some of them. So there's Cosmos and Polkadot. Both started with the idea that for any project that want to spin up like a new blockchain, they should get basically interoperability out of the box. So in Cosmos, uh, you can use the Cosmos SDK and a protocol called IBC that is used to basically send messages similar to maybe TCP IP, where you can just transfer any kind of information between different chains. Polkadot is quite similar. They have a framework called Substrate, which also allows you to basically send messages between different chains in the same Substrate kit. Their protocol is called XCMP. Those are like the, say, two very big industry projects with massive companies or multiple companies actually behind them. And Cosmos is live with their IBC. Polkadot is excitingly uh, launching and they have like an auction mechanism to allow new chains. And the first auction just went live yesterday. Uh, so it's quite exciting to see these projects actually take off. Then there's a thing called Near Blockchain. They have a Ethereum uh, Near Bridge. Avalanche is another blockchain project that has like a Ethereum bridge. I think the common thing now since Ethereum is like kind of the biggest chain apart from Bitcoin. I think everybody's trying to bridge to Ethereum first. Near has a really interesting design with the rainbow bridge. And then there's also Silo. Uh, Silo is another blockchain project. They acquired, I think, the formerly the Summa team that helped TPTC, which is another Bitcoin bridge. They acquired that team and they built new protocol, which is called Optics, to allow basically asset transfers or information transfers. Yeah, and then there's all the kind of Bitcoin-ish projects, uh, which is Wrap Bitcoin. There's Interlay, this is us. There's RenBTC, which they played around a little bit with MPC protocols. I think they might switch over to trusted execution environments now, but I'm not entirely sure. And then there's TBTC, which uses threshold signatures, ECDSA structures. Quite interesting. But you can already see like there's different approaches. There's a lot of projects out there. Yeah, it depends a little bit what you also want to dabble into. Like if you want to actually try it out, I guess on the Ethereum side is, is a good place to start. And there you can definitely check out TBTCs and run BTCs code quite interesting. If you're more into like Rust, there's a lot of good Polkadot projects. Silo, uh, I think, is also built on Rust and Near as well. I think anyway, Rust is the new big thing in blockchain space. Actually, to that point, what are the other engineering challenges that are being solved at this moment in time? So there's a few of them. Since I just talked about Rust, uh, so this is one of the big ones. Since Ethereum kind of popularized a thing called the Ethereum virtual machine. It's a distributed virtual machine, but it's quite hard to save code in this virtual machine. Essentially, everything is a 32 bytes block. You don't have typing on the low-level machine. So one of the big technical challenges is actually to write like bug-free code. And the great thing about blockchains is that they're kind of immutable, but also really 
bad because if you introduce bugs, you have to find clever ways to be able to update your contract still, or you have to kind of fork your code. It's all a bit messy. So you really want to make sure that your code is actually safe, but it's one of the big challenges to you know work around a, a virtual machine that doesn't give you a lot of guarantees. Like it doesn't give you I don't know, overflow guarantees. Uh, there's all sorts of like re-entency problems. Uh, state management is really tricky. I think all the latest generation chains like Polkadot, like Near, like Solana, they pretty much all use Rust and WebAssembly under the hood. So at least on like a programming level, you get a lot more guarantees at compile time. One thing I have to say, like around this implementation detail, there's a lot of tooling now being made for the EVM on the Ethereum side, just because it was tricky to write the code correctly. So now there's a lot of tools that do like model checking for you. There's full-blown formal verification tools out there that can help you check your code. Then on the other side, one of the big technological challenges for interoperability is the issue of verifying state of another blockchain. If you want to build solutions that are non-custodial, you usually want to work with some sort of proof. So let's say I want to actually get a Bitcoin from the Bitcoin chain to Ethereum. To do that, I could verify that, you know, you sent me a transaction on Bitcoin and then I, I'm proving this on Ethereum. And the system is using a thing called a chain relay. Uh, implementing these chain relays is actually quite doable, but you need to basically store all the block headers. So like the first part of the block data of every Bitcoin block, you need to store it on Ethereum. And then for every verification, you need to parse the entire Bitcoin transaction. Um, and that makes it kind of costly to execute these things. And while you can, for example, verify Bitcoin, other more complicated chains, say like Zcash or Doge, super popular right now, it uses its own script hashing function and really expensive to verify or to compute on Ethereum. So that makes it usually expensive to actually build decentralized. There's like these new chains that make it a bit cheaper. So the last two things that I want to talk about in like technical challenges is basically understanding risk incentive structures. So if you build different interoperability solutions, they will have different trade-offs. So you can build something that's centralized and that will be kind of easy to use and very fast. So basically, you know, you would just send me a Bitcoin, you trust me that I actually keep it safe and I would give you a representation of that Bitcoin on Ethereum, for example. That's what RepBTC does under the hood, more or less. They do it additionally with some sort of KYC mechanism where they need to know who you are in advance and check that your credentials are correct. You know who I am as like the operator of RepBTC. So I have my reputation to lose basically if I would steal your Bitcoin. But then if you go into getting away from this weird trusting each other kind of a thing, but rather we want to build a trustless protocol, then we have to be careful with like incentive structures because you can collateralize things. A very popular thing in blockchains is, you know, I, I'm going to keep your Bitcoin safe, uh, but I'm also going to post some collateral. And the collateral is usually posted in a different currency than what you're giving me. So say you give me Bitcoin, I'm posting collateral in ETH. Then you kind of need to ensure that I'm always having enough collateral lock to not motivate me from stealing your Bitcoin. And since obviously cryptocurrencies are very volatile, that's sometimes quite tricky to do. And then reasoning about these systems and in which cases they are still secure 
can be tricky. And then, yeah, very last technical challenge that I want to talk about is most public blockchains don't have a concept of finality. Um, and that means if you send a Bitcoin transaction, um, if you go, for example, to a regular exchange, so you will always have to wait for a certain number of confirmations. So I don't know if you deposit something into Coinbase, Coinbase will usually require that the transaction is included in a block and that there's at least, say, six, seven, eight or nine blocks that confirm this block and then can probabilistically say that the transaction is is final. But that's really terrible for user experience in a, in a time where basically uh, you get impatient if you have to wait for a website to load for like, I don't know, half a second. And now suddenly we have to build protocols where your average waiting time for, say, a Bitcoin confirmation is like an hour. That makes it very hard to you know navigate around making like a great user experience. Yeah, I think those like those four points, like the verification cost and limitations of execution environments, the programming languages and implementation issues, together with the risk and incentive structures, and like this usability issue with lags and delays on confirmation times. So I think those are kind of the main challenges that people are working on right now. I have a few questions from left field for you. Uh, one is around uh, kind of more from the business perspective. So how is it from a fundraising perspective when you're in a space that I guess is quite sexy right now in the, in the world of engineering? Uh, are you being like aggressively pursued by VCs? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Yeah, there is. So, so in our case, we're just about to close our like seed funding round for us. It was really important to find like the right investors. There's a lot of investors specifically in the crypto space that are mostly interested in projects releasing a token as quickly as possible. I think there's some few VCs that kind of want to make a quick buck mostly. And <laughs> I think there's always this every couple of years in the crypto space, at least like this year and then 2017-18, like with this ICO hype, there's so many people coming in and throwing money at projects which makes it a bit weird. But yeah, generally, I would say uh, startups in the crypto space tend to be very high valued in the sense that there's a lot of VCs coming into the space right now and there's a lot of money being thrown around. I think also one of the reasons is that a lot of the crypto VCs, they profited a lot from dramatically increased prices, right? So they have a lot of cash at hand that they can also spend. But on the other hand, there's also a lot of great VCs in this space that are interested in long-term projects, you know, kind of changing the future kind of thing. They're actually interested in finding projects to invest in that are supposed to find solutions to problems and products five years down the road, like with a very long horizon. So in our case, we are mostly interested in solving this, how can we transfer Bitcoin to other chains without trusting anyone? And we have a solution based on our protocol, but it's like, it's going to take time for that to actually find mass adoption since blockchains also don't have mass adoption, right? So it's kind of a long-term bet. There's an interesting development, I think, in the crypto space, the Maker Foundation, as an example. Um, they were one of the first decentralized finance projects in the space. And they did a stable coin. So solving this problem of how can we get stable cryptocurrencies? And they, they made this coin called DAI, which is basically a representation of the US dollar on Ethereum. And from a company perspective, their journey is super interesting since they started as a, as a company, they raised funding, eventually they issued a token and 
I think that's a big difference to the other tech sector is eventually your, your value accrual for investors and also for the people that actually kind of participate in your company and in your network. Um, they can earn the token by participating in the protocols or they can buy the token and all the value accrual then at one point happens outside of the shares of the company, but rather in the token. And what Maker did now, they're dissolving their foundation to go full on DAO. So um, the entire protocol holdings, the funding for say hackathons, marketing budget, uh, lobbying, whatever not, is now all managed by a autonomous organization that lives on the blockchain. Dominic, I have one last question. It relates to international treaties for climate change. So as you're aware, I'm sure many countries have made pretty significant commitments around carbon emission reduction and I suppose the steps that they're going to take in that regard. Could you see a use case for blockchain in this regard whereby there's a possibility to hold countries to account and there's a possibility to validate actual carbon emissions and actual, I suppose, carbon sequestration initiatives. So you could do everything from having sensors in forests to track how much carbon is being absorbed by trees and going from that granular level to something much more scalable. But when you think of blockchain in terms of it being useful in an environment where there's an absence of trust and in an environment where there's an incentive for actors to cheat. Uh, I can't think of any more high stakes game of poker <laughs> than uh, what's been done for climate change. And I wonder, is there a use case for blockchain or in that? There might be. So what blockchain is great at is being temper resistant. So for example, just gave us an example, if you put like sensors in trees and they would report basically their data and would keep it in like a temper proof append only ledger. I think that would be really good and practical to have and some practical problems aside like cost of transactions but you could kind of work around that there's some other really good append only database solutions out there but if you really want to go for this we want to minimize trust and go with the consensus overhead and you could even borrow from one of the existing blockchains that are cheap to use to write the data to that then yeah absolutely i think there's a use case for that the very hard part is to ensure that anything that happens outside the blockchain, you somehow need to tell the blockchain about it. And every time something happens outside the chain, there's always this risk that people would temper with this outside and then transferring the data to the actual chain. And I don't say it's impossible to solve, but the sensor example, like you would need to kind of make sure, I don't know, you can't really temper with the sensors itself. Obviously, you could just go next to the sensor and temper with that. And yeah, like how can we make sure that's not tempered with? But ultimately, I think you could use blockchain technology for this data aggregation and making sure that at least with the data itself, people wouldn't temper with it. Yeah, I think there's a place for it, especially now considering that I think all the newer blockchains as well as Ethereum are either already on proof of stake or switching to proof of stake. So there's a lot of news around Bitcoin and mining you know, electricity heavy, that's being worked on quite a bit. So at least this massive overhead of blockchain itself contributing to climate change should be reduced. Uh, Bitcoin will not change from proof of work, I'm pretty sure, but at least the other ones are switching to a consensus or a transaction ordering mechanism that's not as electricity heavy. Dominic, this has been really interesting. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Great questions and uh, very happy to have been chatting with you. 
Fantastic. So production was by Albina Krasteva with editing by Adnan Tukar and music by Robert Cooney. Catch you next time on the story of software.